I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thank you for joining us again. This is part two of the conversation with Tim Ash. Tim is an author, a keynote speaker, a digital marketing expert and advisor. He, for 19 years, was the co-founder and CEO of Site Tuners, a strategic digital optimization agency focused on digital marketing and helping some of the biggest names in the world, including Google, Expedia, eHarmony, Facebook, American Express, Nestle, Semantic, and so many others. His knowledge of uh, digital advertising and digital media has been documented in hundreds of articles on the web as well as two best-selling books. He is also the founder of the International Digital Growth Unleashed event. He was also the founding chair of the International Digital Growth Unleashed event, which was the largest event series uh, that uh, focused on the idea of digital marketing. As you have noticed from part one, we are not talking about any of that today. Mostly we're focusing on Tim's new book, Unleashing Your Primal Brain, Demystifying How We Think and Why We Act. Uh, which is a book that goes to the fundamentals of the whys behind our actions from an evolutionary perspective. Thank you for coming back. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. We're going to go into the wildest places in part two with my good friend, Tim Ash. I mean, if you look at every one of those evolutionary steps on the way, do you find that all of them are useful for us? Some of them are working for us or some of them are working against us? I don't find that question to be useful. I feel, pardon, great yeah, counter response. Yeah. yeah, because the big prism is, does it help you survive? Or did it help you survive in the environment in which it evolved? That's it. There's no sense in that of value judgments on top of it. Uh, we tend to group into bands, for example, and believe cultural knowledge, especially in times of crisis and uncertainty, because we were stronger together than on our own. For example, if you said, the world is flat, Tim, and I climbed up on the mast of the ship and I said, well, I can kind of see the horizon bending a little, so I think the world is a sphere. You know what you'd do to me and what was done many times? You'd throw me off the freaking mast. <laughs> Because I'm not spreading the cultural knowledge of the world is flat. Right or wrong doesn't matter. The tribal cohesion is what matters, how tight the tribe is and what we can do as a group and how we compete against other groups. That's what got us here. It's this inner group conflict. And so you have to be a good tribal member. And if you weren't, there's these escalating social sanctions from gossip to denial of economic and mating opportunities to ostracism to banishment to killing if you don't follow social norms. And so that's a pretty uniquely human thing. Unfortunately, again, in, it worked in small tribal societies. It's kind of scary when you have nuclear weapons. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you don't mind me saying, it's crap. I mean, it is what makes us human, but it's also what makes us 
ignorant. I mean, when yeah. you talk about societies sanctioning what is right and wrong, amazing conceptually, I love that, but isn't what killing us in the internet world that we're starting to define what's right and wrong and sanctioning it so strongly, wrongly. You know, it's like we're now saying short attention span on silly, stupid stuff and rudeness and bullying and all yeah, of that. Yes. That's the way to act. And then um, Alvin Toffler, I'm, you know, we're roughly the same age. You probably remember this futurist. He and his wife wrote some amazing books in the 70s and 80s, Future Shock, The Third Wave, Power Shift, these amazing books. And he was talking about the acceleration of the acceleration of knowledge. And the problem is we're going so fast, a thousand miles an hour. I mean, if you're driving a car at regular speed, you can turn the steering wheel and adjust. But if you're one of those like guys on the racetrack doing the Formula One, one little twitch of the wheel, you're going to put yourself in the wall and flip the car because at high speeds, there's much less tolerance for, for error and the inputs get a lot smaller. Yeah, that's exactly where we are right now. This is exactly yeah, exactly. So is. we're just like going faster and faster. I mean, my whole thing is like, how do we slow things down? How do we introduce inefficiencies? How do we pull towards the oh, center? I love that sentence. I love that sentence. Introduce inefficiencies because we're so obsessed about efficiency yes it's just it's the wrong direction so for example like on facebook you know when you're talking or twitter when you're talking about lie spreading they've been shown to spread inaccuracies much faster than truth well why aren't we making it harder to retweet idiocy that's been shown and fact checked to be wrong you know you have to create inefficiencies because then you're, you're sort of opposing the same comment we said about culture, because who is to judge what is idiocracy and what isn't? Yeah, we've crossed that line where factual truth no longer exists, and that's a very dangerous place to be. I mean, that's 1984, you know, that's where we're headed. Totally, but I mean, I recall vividly when I started at Google, and you know, there were situations where a certain YouTube video, which would be perceived in Turkey, according to the Turkish culture, as extremely offensive for, you know, California and the Google culture in California would be like, no, it isn't. What's you know, the we big should, deal, right? <laughs> yeah, and we should spread it more, right? And that clash is not about the idea. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's primal amongst us to propagate what we believe is cultural and right. But the problem yes. is if we give Google the right to say this should spread and this shouldn't, we would end up in a place where the Turkish culture would be crushed as a result. Yeah, and that's a, a tough balance. But I'll tell you, the wrong side of it is is where Zuckerberg is, and you know we're just a platform, and you know anybody can say anything they want, and that's not. There's got to be a communal interest, and my problem from a business or cultural standpoint is we're not holding the businesses to account. We're we're letting them destroy the very societies that they exist in. Time with uh, you. Undermine the governments, and you know that's that's my problem. So I think there needs to be a lot more regulation and strong antitrust and some uh, international compacts around that. So that's where I am. I mean, we have like in Europe, you have GDPR, you have some tiny agency with a budget of 30 million sitting in Ireland trying to control privacy laws for the EU. Good luck with that. I mean, it's a joke. So you know, until we start taking the cohesion of our society seriously, I don't know, this is not going in a good direction. In a very interesting way, of course, and I say that with a ton of respect. I, I lived years at Google and it's a company that I totally appreciate at the time where I lived there. But, you know, we used to have the, the YouTube community guidelines. Community guidelines are supposed to be driven by the community, 
of course, as you can imagine, but there will be some times when the community is not defined correctly. Is it the Turkish community? Is it the users? Is it the developers? Is it the PR, head of PR globally, which may have certain biases or intentions, you know, may have certain understandings of the world? Or is it the account teams that are trying to squeeze more money out of the advertisers and the clients? <laughs> right. And there so you go. I was going to get there. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> and now you start to tell yourself, I'm actually going back to to our own primal brain, our own individual choices, where I will say, look, your only community guideline is you, you know, your community. If it's you and your best 10 friends among you, you might as well just start to say, no, I'm no longer going to follow the crap that's being poured in my head. And yeah, that might not fix the world, but it's gonna fix your community, your little world, as Azali used to teach me. Your little world is you and your actual real 10 best friends and can you stand up and say, this is what I stand for, this is how I want my life to be, and the rest is crap. And, and I think it's about time we start doing this. But I think we have to be careful about being in the age of the individual too. I, I read a really important book, it came out in the late 90s, but I just ran across it called The Fourth Turning. And it's this idea that history repeats in 80 to 100 year cycles because there's this predictable dynamic of the four generations that are born in the lifespan of a typical long human life. And then we create a crisis and then we have a high and then a, a cultural awakening followed by this kind of disintegration and unraveling. And right now, according to this book, we're in the U.S. in the crisis period of 2005 to 25. And this is usually when huge wars start as well that are going to be really catastrophic. But it's a complete reordering of society. And during the crisis, we come together. And the last one was World War II and the Great Depression in the U.S. Uh, but after World War II, there was this communal culture we can put people on the moon. The GIs came back. They were able to do great things together. It had a lot of bad side effects, but the arc of my life as a Gen Xer has only been to see that unravel and get worse. And we're going towards this where the individual is the measure of everything. So government doesn't work because I don't believe government does anything good and, and so on. I think there's this kind of pumping action between communalism and individualism. And right now we're at the very end cycle uh, where individualism runs rampant. I'm not for individualism at all. As a matter of fact, I think individualism is probably what's destroying our world. It's, you know, my own benefit. That's what yeah. I'm saying. That's what's brought us to the current crisis. What I mean by, by my comment is that I think every single individual should take charge. They should be responsible. shouldn't expect that the government or the big four or the, you know, the internet players or whoever, the, nobody's going to fix this for you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm saying you need to be in charge of fixing your own consumption of it, if you want. Yeah. So kind of think uh, global, act local, is what you're advocating. Act very local. Honestly, you know, in my small circle, I have a few tens of thousands of followers, a few hundreds of thousands of readers and so on. This is my circle. And maybe if I have the chance to influence them positively, that's my circle. My smaller circle is my company, let's say. My smaller circle is my friends. My smaller circle is me, Aya, and my ex, and you know, the mm -hmm. people I love Your in family, my life yeah. and so on, my family. And, and basically this, you need to start from that core and tell yourself, look, you know, it's not about me individually against the rest of the world. It's basically about me individually understanding what I stand for, what I yes. want from this, right? 
And it's interesting you bring that up. I, I think of it as concentric circles. There's actually been some sociological studies that say people that you would label progressive versus conservative in the true sense of the word, not the radical version we have politically in the U.S. But it has to do with your sphere of concern, whether it's local or global. So globalists care about the world, human rights, animal rights, all living things on the planet. Localists care about, you know, my family, my church, my town, my ethnic group. And so you can actually have the same events. For example, you'll know where I stand on this, separating children from their families at the U.S. border and putting them in cages and view it through two different prisms. On the, the progressives would say, hey, that's, there's a level of human rights and basic dignity where you shouldn't be doing that. And they'll strongly be for that. Whereas localists and more conservative people would say, well, those people didn't look like me and they didn't come to this country, quote unquote, legally. So that's not in my sphere of concern. And so it's been shown that people kind of self-sort into these globalist versus localist views. And that's partly a genetic thing. Yeah, I think that's really, in my view, one of the biggest risks humanity humanity faces going forward. Because in my, in my view, there will be a concentration of some of those trends that will accelerate as the tools and technologies make us go further and further from the 100 people tribe to the median people tribe to the, so the polarization is gonna become bigger and bigger. So all of this evolutionary psychology, tell me what you think was the biggest impact on our pandemic. I mean, how did our primal brain respond to this very unusual situation. Well, the biggest impact has been on our highly social natures. I went to high school near Philadelphia, and in, the, in Philadelphia, there's this Eastern State Penitentiary, which was designed 200 years ago on the, with the idea that people's nature is basically good, and they turn to crime only because of their surrounding environment. So if you keep them isolated as much as possible with a Bible in their cell, then they'll come back to their better selves. And looking back on it, we're going to look at this or supermax prisons today. And the fact that we keep people in cages 23 hours a day and don't let them have human contact as the most sadistic, sick, wrongheaded thing possible. As people in isolation go crazy, literally. And that's what's happening in the pandemic. You're seeing these massive uh, increases in domestic violence, in suicide risk and depression and anxiety, especially among the young who really need to, teenagers and young adults who need to be with their social group, and they've been denied that. And so that has probably been the biggest impact. The last part of my book, the last several chapters is called hypersocial. We really need to honor that. There was a longitudinal study with Harvard uh, people and their South Boston poor cousins for 70 years. And what they found is in terms of well-being impact, having a strong social support system is about the medical equivalent of not being a two-pack-a-day smoker. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, that important. Yeah. So our social connections need to express themselves. And so I think that's been the biggest discontinuity and an impact of the pandemic. But, you know, some of us became more social. I mean, you and I are connected on Zoom because of the pandemic, to be honest. Yes. 
Yeah, so there's a silver lining in everything. Again, no matter what value you use, I feel that people are getting more real. I bring more of myself to every business conversation. I'm, I know you, and I'm not afraid to have this very frank and public exchange with you, but I'll get as real as you want. You want to know what's going on with me? Yeah, my kids are struggling. I had huge financial hits. Before, we used to put on the happy face and do those Instagram influencer moments. And now it's just like, yeah, this is my life. I'm working from home and I can't get on a plane to do international keynote speaking anymore. So that's been one of the upsides. I think people are willing to get more real. And you believe there will be more of this? Are we, are we heading into a world where there is more upsides or more downsides, you think? Well, I'm not a futurist. I'm a pastist. I guess that's what my evolutionary <laughs> per psychology perspective gives me. Um, I don't know. Personally, I've always been, I had a pretty optimistic constitution, but I saw this editorial cartoon where they had this wave about to hit the beach, a 10-foot wave, and it said global pandemic. And behind it, there was a 30-foot wave said <laughs> global recession. And behind it was this 100-foot tsunami that said climate extinction crisis. I think this is just a warm-up round. The world's <laughs> going to become destabilized. And um, I don't feel particularly good for my kids or their place in this trajectory. So that's kind of where I am. I'm not optimistic. We got to do everything we can to try to weave the center back together. And the centripetal forces are just getting stronger. There's no doubt in my mind, I think, that the challenges that we're about to face are quite substantial. There's no doubt in my mind at all. I have to admit, though, I mean, we started our conversation by talking about the vaccine, right? If this was 1920, you know, and the Spanish flu, we would be nowhere, which also indicates to you that we have the tools, I think. We have the tools. We have, we have really gathered so much knowledge and tech and, and, you know, advancement in our science that we could do something about it. I think the challenge really, honestly, is what you're talking about. The challenge is where do we direct all of those tools and, and technologies? I think when the pandemic hits us and we all go like, woohoo, you know, economic uh, threats, but also economic opportunities for those who can develop a vaccine, suddenly you get humanity going like, you want a vaccine? I'll get you a vaccine. Well, we need a common purpose. We need, uh, as Biden is calling for in the U.S., a moonshot. And, you know, our generation's task is, is to take that up, that, again, communal, larger purpose. I personally think that you've been drinking the proverbial Kool-Aid a little bit too much and that you're still infected with that other virus, which is pivoting and scrumming your way to being a unicorn and growth, 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 and you know opportunities for sectors of the economy. And to me, that's a sickness. I think this is a runaway train and we're going to overrun the resources of this planet very quickly just based on population and based on everybody wanting a Western standard of living economically. It's not sustainable if we stay on this path. So uh, like I said, I'm still looking to slow down the train, maybe even derail it. I'm not quite at the anarchist stage, but I think um, the direction of people living in tiny houses and, and growing backyard gardens, like say local things you can do, that's the thing. That's our only hope is that we switch to that from a capitalist mindset. I don't think that there's some deus ex machina that's going to save us with all of these accelerating, converging dynamics. Technology is not the answer. Science is not the answer. It's got to be different social constructs. Otherwise, we'll just have 
mass migrations, droughts, hurricanes, wars, perhaps nuclear ones, and then, you know, a billion people on the planet, we might make it sustainable, whatever that society looks like after the war, but not with 8 billion, not if we keep on going and thinking that science is going to save us. Okay, let me say this diplomatically because people are listening. Uh, I, actually, I actually don't disagree about how stark the challenges are. I don't disagree at all. I also have to say, expecting that it's over is not going to get us anywhere, right? As a matter of fact, most of the main changes, if I read a book uh, maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, called Abundance, and it was quite interesting. <laughs> Abundance is about the idea that our world, every time it got really close to a crisis, it turned around basically meaning that there is enough resources in the world to sustain 8 billion people. As a matter of fact, that's absolutely true. I mean, our planet Earth... Yeah, if you create proteins differently and if you distribute food equally. If you handled planet Earth properly, it can feed us and a trillion other living beings very, very easily, right? The problem is we're treating it wrong. You know, we're fishing too much, we're killing too much, we're polluting yeah. too much and so Cutting on. Cutting down the Amazon, yep. Yeah, not only the Amazon. As a matter of fact, if you've seen that uh, incredible documentary, uh, Seaspiracy, it's not just the Amazon. It's actually the, the sea. I mean, I work, when I was at Google X, we worked on a project that basically says that the true sponge of the earth is actually the oceans and the, and the algae in the oceans, right? This yeah, is and really I think weird. by the same uh, producer, there's a cowspiracy also about how unsustainable animal food production exactly. is. Exactly. You know? So it's, it's not that there isn't enough on Earth to sustain 8 billion. I don't think 8 billion is the problem. I think 8 billion wanting to live the Western lifestyle is the problem. And even anyone wanting to live the Western lifestyle, me included, by the way, is the problem. I mean, you and I, with all due respect, we, I traveled around the world. I know, I'm I'm flying around on jets. That's like the, personally, the most wasteful thing, you know, that's a prerequisite. Absolutely. And, you know, when when you think about it, in my mind, I managed somehow to convince myself that, you know, it's good. It's one billion happy. I'm traveling. I'm telling people about happiness. It's a good thing. It's worth the fuel burnt. But the truth is, you know, after the pandemic and I can do so much. I mean, slow-mo itself is reaching so many more people than I used to reach in live events. And it gets you to think from an abundance point of view that you can achieve the same mission. You can do it better without really destroying the planet. And I think What you're saying is, I think we agree that we need a different social construct. Yes. And that social construct is what's going to use the technology, use everything that we have to turn things around. But that social construct is up to you and I. Yes, it can sustain eight. Can it sustain 10 or 12? I don't know. And still, the challenge of our times is to soft land capitalism. It's how do we go from the fact that we think only about growth instead of sustainability. How, how do we go the thinking from revenue to happiness? Uh, you know, there's some uh, minister level positions in some countries that are actually devoted, as you know, I'm sure, to happiness. That's a different evaluation. Uh, so I think our values are screwed up and we've, we've infected the world with the wrong values. That, believe it or not, is the topic of my next book. It's quite interesting that you, you bring this up. So my next book, is entitled supposed to be talking about artificial intelligence. But in essence, it's basically saying technology has magnified whatever it is that we humans have been, and AI is going to magnify that even further and even become more of what we are. And so 
the issue with our planet is that our value system, our, our societal engagement rules and habits, they need to change. And we need to bring about that change very, very quickly. Yes, and we're running out of time. And I think that's something we can both agree on. By the way, my PhD work, I never finished. I was in for seven years, was in neural networks and what would now be called machine learning and AI. And back then we were working on the algorithm side. There wasn't the large data sets to train on. Obviously with the advent of the internet, that's no longer an issue. But now the problem is the ethics. We're training on data sets okay. which have our built-in biases in them. And we're still doing the equivalent of say redlining and not giving mortgages to people in poor neighborhood because in the past we didn't give mortgages to people in poor neighborhoods. And, and so it's this, we're baking in our biases and we can't okay. let the AI run open loop. That's for sure. For sure. And I think, again, it's a social construct. We behave in certain ways in our societies today that when magnified by technology can really take us down the drain very, very fast. And, and maybe, maybe the answer is, can we turn that around? And, and once again, I'll, I'll just say, I agree with all of this. I have to say, however, that from a point of view of abundance, I remain optimistic, not because we're the most incredible species that seems to have figured it out, but because somehow it seems to be baked into life to provide abundance, right? So, so somehow some of our biggest screw-ups, you and I as individuals in our 20s or whatever, were the things that actually somehow led you to be who you are today. And so I think we need to keep a realistic view of how drastic the challenges are. But also we need to keep an optimistic eye on what are the possibilities when they pop up. I, I think, I forget it was maybe uh, Sapolsky who was talking about kind of what does make humans different from other animals and a, even great apes. And one of the things he said was the, I believe it was him, was the ability to hold contradictions. So I think we've come towards the end of the segment, as I understand it. And here's the big contradiction. On the one hand, we know that nothing we do matters at all. In this time scale of the last 13.8 billion years of this universe, I don't know how many multiverses there are. You know, our life means nothing. Nothing we care about means nothing. Nothing, no one we care about means nothing. And at the same time, we need to have a deeply felt sense of meaning in our life. And it's that ability to hold the contradiction that none of it means anything and yet it needs to mean something. That right there is that tightrope of life that I'm trying to walk anyway. This is what I normally translate into my simple statement of life is a video game. You get into the game and you do your absolute best to finish the level and, you know, get every shot right and every, get everything <laughs> amazing, right? But in reality, it's just a video game. You can literally switch off the console and nothing would happen. You know, your true self would not yeah, be affected. I mean, to me, it's even more bewildering. I would say it's like you show up, you don't know what the rules are. I mean, if at least video games have rules and stuff, you don't know how it ends. You don't know if there's anything afterwards. I mean, it's like, and you still have to make up some sort of meaning along the way. It's really, um, it's an unsolvable. Gamers like me, give me a <laughs> controller. Don't tell me anything. I'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be bashed a few times on the way, but you know, eventually I'll figure it out. I think that's the whole... Uh, there you go. That's all we can do. Stumbling around in the dark. Yeah, that's the whole game. I think the game is... I think the game is on, to be very honest. I think you're absolutely spot on and we're running out of time. But, but I don't think that the answers are linear. I think that, you know, I still believe there are things we can do that would literally turn things upside down.
I'm not hopeless rather. Um, I need to make a better world for my children and for everyone yeah, who's still going like to be that. here. I like that very much. I like that accountability of saying, look, let's not fool ourselves anymore and spend any more time, you know, wasting our lives binge watching Netflix and, and, and yeah. you know, reality shows. Let's be realistic here. Our world needs intervention and every single one of us needs to take this seriously. There's, um, I heard this definition of a hero once, and that is somebody who does what's necessary regardless of the consequences to themselves. It's not some supernatural thing with where you have a cape and fly around. It's that warrior mode, and I mean that in the good sense of the word, not the macho sense. So the, in service to the realm, in service to justice and purpose, it's the get done mode. You know, I just, I'm going to do what's necessary. And that's where I am at this life stage. And that's what I'm doing for my children and for the planet. I love this. I'm just going to do what's necessary. I'm going to do it fast and I'm going to do it to the best of my abilities. And the hope, the hope is that if everyone else, everyone listening to us, we're talking to you here, everyone else actually does the same, do the best they can, do it to right. the best of their abilities, do it fast. And balance that with the other energies of the king who sets the purpose and the direction or the sovereign um, more broadly, the lover who brings his heart to it and an openness and, and uh, the magician. And I think this is where this especially lies in the realm of technology for you, who has the secret knowledge and the alchemy to transform things and get nonlinear results. So we have to bring our whole full beings to this planet if it's going to have any chance of survival. And no better way to end our conversation. We have to bring our whole being to this planet if it has any chance of survival. I don't know how many topics we covered, Tim. Uh, I think <laughs> one or two. <laughs> I think it's always been. I mean, our last conversation when we met uh, in that event was actually quite similar. We spoke about twelve different things from digital marketing to life to balance to purpose to uh, global warming to global extinction and it's always the same i love it i enjoy it tremendously and i really appreciate your your deep thoughts and analysis of everything it's been a wonderful conversation very grateful that you came i feel the same as uh, i don't know if you'll be showing the video of this but i have a giant grin on my face this whole time you're a beautiful man and i love what you do and uh grateful for the opportunity to chat and share about my views on things Oh man, that was an interesting conversation. I don't know if you are an optimist or a pessimist. I think I agree with Tim. The gravity of what our world is going through is quite sizable. And I think it is definitely a good closing for our episode to say that we definitely have a lot to, to address with urgency. I think we each should do the best we can because we need to leave a better world for our children. I love that idea. Having said that, I'm much more of an optimist. As I said, I believe in abundance. I believe we will figure something out. I'm not underestimating the fact that we need to act and act fast, but I don't think the world is, is going to go through a very grim and difficult phase. Hopefully not. Uh, let's see where life will take us. Life has taken us into so many topics today. I hope you have uh, managed to follow and enjoyed our conversation. And I am always, always very grateful that you give me the opportunity to catch up with old friends and, and have interesting conversations. It's the highlight of my day. I hope it adds value to you too. Please do stay in touch. Uh, find me on social media. Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram is where I'm most active. Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn. 
is the second most active. And then there is, of course, mo.gaudet.official on Facebook and mgaudet on Twitter. I apologize for not being able to accept more connections on some of those platforms because I've reached the maximum uh, limit of connections. But do send me a message. Tell me what you think. Tell me about that idea of bedtime, bedtime stories, if you like it. And hopefully, you know, tell me things I can do to improve slow-mo. While you're at it, please do help me spread the message by sharing on your social media, telling your friends about slow-mo, as well as uh, hopefully, uh, if you haven't done so already, rating the podcast. Five stars is the, is the rating that I would ask you to put in there with a nice comment. That would help people understand that there is something for them to enjoy and learn from here. Remember, regardless of how busy your days are, and I know your days are becoming more and more busy now that we're sort of coming out of lockdowns, there is always, always time to slow down. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.